When schools were closed at the beginning of the pandemic, we did not have a robust public debate. The issue, unfortunately, was politicized. And it's only been recently, with the data now emerging, that a mainstream conversation has been possible. Back in 2020, my guest on the podcast today warned what school closures could mean for children, and particularly for the most vulnerable kids. People could see it. It was almost like it was suppressed evidence, this idea that, yeah, if you close schools, the kids who have the most disadvantages at home are going to suffer the most. That was known from the beginning, and it should have been surfaced constantly whenever we have this conversation about the pros and the cons. Anya Kamenetz is a former education reporter for NPR. Her new book is The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. Anya Kamenetz is my guest today on Lean Out. Anya, welcome to Lean Out. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for coming on today. This is such an important topic. I think this is a book that many people have been waiting for. You reported on the aftermath of Katrina as a young reporter. So you had an idea what was coming with the school closures, perhaps more than many in the mainstream media. You wrote a piece for NPR early on warning about the impacts of school closures. What did we know back then? So research from the aftermath of Katrina, um, you know, which is more than um, 15 years in the past now, as well as from all over the world, when schools shut down during social catastrophes like pandemics and wars, shows that when children lose that central place in their lives, that stable place, it's far more than learning. Learning, of course, can take a lot of time to recover, even with a short closure. But we also really worry about kids' safety and some of the basic services that schools provide, as well as just the contact with caring adults. You know, of course, we want the family and the household to be the central place in kids' lives. And most of the time, it absolutely is. But teachers and the caring adults in schools are such an important conduit of children's development, as well as their peers. Mm-hmm. Now, just to set the stage for us, I mean, where, where I live, for example, the school closures were four school closures, about 28 weeks in total. Speaking about the U.S. kind of generally, I know it was a patchwork, but how widespread were the school closures in the U.S.? Oh, my gosh. Uh, the United States kept our schools closed longer to more children than anywhere else in the developed world. So we averaged about 58 weeks of closures. Uh, that meant that more than half, uh, particularly Black and Hispanic children, were out of school uh, for more than a calendar year. Wow. So I want to tease some of the threads here. This book is deeply researched and reported, so we'll just dip into a few of the topics. But to, to give listeners an idea of the widespread suffering that these closures cause for children, let's first talk about hunger. What did school closures do to child hunger in America? In the United States, the school food program is the second largest public food program. And so when it switched to giving out sandwiches in parking lots, child hunger spiked to levels that researchers are really not used to seeing. Um, we saw 17.5% of parents of young children saying not only the parents, but the children are not getting enough to eat in April and May 2020. And those elevated levels persisted all the way through to December 2020 as cash relief was getting out to families. So this is really unprecedented. Um, we know that hunger can have lifelong impacts. It has impact on mental health as well as children's physical and brain development as well. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, you cite a statistic in the book that in 2013, the share of public school students in low-income households crossed 50%. What does school closures mean for children living in poverty, perhaps in homes without electronic devices, reliable internet connections? As you point out, in Oakland alone, for instance, at least 5,000 students didn't have computers. Yeah, I mean, there was a massive effort to get computers and internet hotspots out to uh, students all over the country in rural areas and urban areas where there's underconnectedness. But that lack of connectivity really persisted all the way into, um, you know, as basically as long as remote learning persisted, because, you know, it's not just about the bandwidth. It's also about having a quiet space to learn. If you have more than one sibling who's trying to get on a device at the same time, I mean, even in places, if you have broadband internet, it can be hard to have multiple people on Zoom at the same time. So the technical problems are really, really tough. And I think that people realize that, you know, they knew that there was going to be a technical problem with remote learning, but we didn't really think about what that would mean if, if that was really children's only option to access learning for such a long period of time. Mm-hmm. I want to spend a moment too on the the children of single mothers. You tell a really powerful story in the book about a child called Habersham. Can you briefly tell us that story? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, all over the country, there were children whose parents were essential workers who had no options when school shut down and when childcare shut down. Heather was a mother raising eight children in St. Louis. And her seven-year-old son one day got out. She was working at a homeless shelter. So she couldn't, she didn't have a job that she could do from home. She didn't have anywhere safe to leave her kids. And she admitted to sometimes locking the door on her kids when she had to go to work. Um, Habersham one day wandered off. He climbed in the window of an abandoned building in his neighborhood with two other friends. And a man inside that building shot them. He shot Habersham in the leg and his friend in the wrist. And Habersham was, was what, seven years old when this happened? He was seven years old. It was just a couple of months into the school shutdowns in May, 2020. Thankfully he recovered. Obviously it was traumatic and there was no recourse. I mean, there was no way to get apparently the services that, that, that family needed in the city at that time. How are they doing now? The last time I've been in touch with um, one of his older siblings, they were, you know, still in their housing, which they had been fearing losing. Heather was looking for a new job. And yeah, that's basically the last that I heard. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, there's just, there's so many, so many issues to dig into here. Another one was, was children's mental health, which we're, we're starting to hear more and more data come out now. In June of 2020, you got the first of many emails from the public. This, this first one from a psychologist, Lisa Damor, saying the kids are not all right. What do we know about the impacts of school closures on, on children's mental health? Well, it's been devastating. It's been devastating all over the world and, you know, and across class lines as well. So what happened when kids lost that social outlet, you know, the place where they see their friends as well as caring adults was an incredible amount of hopelessness and despair and sort of a a loss of vision of the future. So, you know, I profiled a young boy, another seven-year-old boy who he actually stopped eating. So he was so distraught at not being able to see his friends and not knowing when people were going to be able to go back to school or to the things that he loved to do. He was anxious and concerned about people getting sick and dying. So he went on what his his mother described as a hunger strike, um, an anxiety induced, and, and he lost all this weight. And, you know, his, his parents were so busy. They were also both teachers. They were doing remote teaching. They were homeschooling three children. 
And um, it really got to a dire level. Thankfully, you know, teletherapy has been the lifeline for a lot of kids, but we also have to think about the kids that don't have access to mental health services, which are not in ample supply in the United States. And Mm -hmm. we're seeing as well that in, you know, facilities for inpatient care, um, kids are cycling in and out. They're spending days and nights in the emergency rooms because there aren't suitable beds for them when they need that kind of intensive intervention. So it's been really upsetting watching the kids that I've been profiling, as well as honestly, children in my social circles who are struggling with all kinds of impacts. And they're expected to continue. I mean, this, you know, trauma takes time to work its way out. Sometimes people are keeping together really well when there's a emergency, but when things are quote unquote back to normal, that's when the feelings start to come out. So I think we should be prepared to continue to have this conversation and make sure that our kids are able to talk about things that they're going through and hopefully get the the interventions that they need. Mm -hmm. There's another group of children too, that you look at here, the children who are institutionalized, whether that's in foster care or in juvenile detention centers, you tell the story of one teenager, David, who was uh, incarcerated in Louisiana. Tell us a bit about him. Yeah, I thought it was really important to talk about the kids that we don't see, physically don't see because they're locked away. There's been a a reduction in population in juvenile detention in the last few years in the United States, but there's still 40,000 teenagers in jails and prisons. David was serving a longer sentence. He was on able to be on furloughs. He was able to go home and visit his family. And then when lockdown started, he had to rush back to the jail. He was placed into solitary confinement to quarantine. And then he was basically on lockdown in his cell. And this happened all over the country. You know, children who were teenagers who were incarcerated were denied in-person visits with their families, sometimes for up to a full year. And this is because of COVID restrictions. And I mean, I find that to be cruel and inhumane. It's not illegal in the United States to deny a teenager visitation with their family, but I just can't imagine as a mother what that would feel like to not be able to see my child for that long. And the same thing happened to kids in foster care. You know, if the foster parents didn't agree to it, they didn't have to allow in-person visits during COVID, you know, because of the COVID worries of the transmission of the disease. So you had little babies who were separated from their parents who had nothing but Zoom to see their families and to maintain that bond. Um, And similarly, it happened with kids who were institutionalized because they have disabilities. You know, there are kids who are having to be in long-term care because of their, um, you know, their mental or physical disabilities, many of whom might not have understood why it was that their parents stopped visiting them. So these separations are things that we don't talk about as much as being, you know, knock-on effects of this terrible pandemic. Mm-hmm. And the schools, I mean, the schools are in so many ways hubs for tons of different kinds of care, including care for children with special needs, say autism, for example. How did the school closures affect kids in that group? So in the U.S., about 14% of kids have disabilities. It's not a tiny number. Um, I'm not sure what it is in Canada, but these are kids who receive services and their families really rely on the expert interventions that they can get uh, through the school system. And that's all publicly funded. So the kids that I talked to with, I mean, I I interviewed the, the mom of a daughter who has multiple severe disabilities. She's nonverbal. She has a feeding tube, but school was this incredible haven for her. It's really kind of a you know, it's a shining example of how the public schools can be a place where, you know, she had friends, she was mainstreamed with typical children in a classroom. And when that was taken away, she didn't have the ability to understand why, you know, she didn't know why she wasn't going to school. She just became 
totally depressed. She shut down. She regressed. That happens a lot with kids with disabilities. They can actually go backwards in their development. And her mother just felt like she, you know, even though she was susceptible to COVID, she was medically fragile. She felt like having her in school was the most important thing for her because of their day-to-day and and what she really needed to be happy, not only to be learning. Mm -hmm. And Anya, you've kept the the focus really on your subjects in this book, but you were also going through this pandemic. You are also a mother. You had children at home. Your workload at NPR went up quite a lot and you were writing this book. What, What was this time like for you? Oh my gosh. You know, I feel like it's like the newborn period again, because you look back on it and it's just a blur. You're like, how did I do all of these things? What were my days like? And obviously I have this record of the pandemic in the book. I think um, I felt very lucky. I also felt like it was an incredible experience as a reporter because there was so much empathy. We were all going through a version of the same things. And I couldn't tell you the number of times that I called up not only a subject, like not only a family I was profiling, but an expert, like a person you know, in my socioeconomic demographic, somebody with a PhD doing research. And I opened the conversation talking about what we're all going through. And there would be tears. People would be like, Mm. look, I'm here on the phone with you talking about early childhood, but I'm in my closet because I don't have childcare, or I'm really, really worried about my own child because they're having mental health struggles. So this was so real and it connected all of us. And if there's anything that I hope that the book can do is to bring us back to the part of this where we felt like we were all in it together and Mm -hmm. like what was affecting us was affecting all of us. Mm -hmm. It's such a good point. I I remember those early days of the pandemic as well, because I was uh, a producer during that time. I do want to talk a little bit about how this was able to happen. You you do talk in the book. This this was so politicized and it did not get enough debate early on at all. I remember in my newsroom, it it just felt like it was um, not on the table for debate at that time. And it did become very controversial subject to talk about, as you you point out in the book as well. Did you feel any nervousness speaking on this issue, writing this book? That's such a great question. So while I was reporting the book, you know, I was a, a an education correspondent for National Public Radio. And that was a privileged position to be in because I had access to the expertise of the newsroom and the authority and people to back me up. So I wasn't just like a random person ranting on Twitter. And we had our health and science reporters. If I wanted to raise an issue or a question about school reopening, you know, they were able to review it and make sure that it was okay from a scientific perspective. I also felt like I had written a previous book about screen time. And for that book, I talked to so many experts. I talked to people in the American Academy of Pediatrics. I talked to people on the cutting edge of research. And I realized that the way that science is communicated to the public, especially to parents, oftentimes is not, it's not as open and honest as it could be. And I think that there's, there's always an understanding. I think we saw this a lot that public health authorities, they have what they know, and then they have what they're trying to communicate to people. And they kind of assume that something's going to get lost in translation. So they tend to couch those messages. Mm. And what I also found when writing about screen time, which is very relevant here is that Fear sells, you know, anything that's a threat to children or a potential threat to children is something that people are going to pay us so much attention to. So here you have this virus, right? It is an unknown virus. It's changing all the time. Um, The information that we have from the very beginning shows it's not that dangerous to children as it is to other adults, right? But the specter of threatening children, threatening families was so, so powerful that it really was enough to kind of shut down that debate. 
um, and, and move it to a really strange place because, you know, the conversation about whether or not we were going to open other things in our society, whether we're going to open bars and restaurants, that turned out to be about personal freedom and it was about business and it was about the economy. And somehow schools didn't get discussed in that same way, right? It's not about personal freedom. It's not about business. It's not about the economy. It's about an essential service that our families need, that our children need. And the longer term effects or the intangible benefits of school somehow were not measured or weighted enough to stack up against the unknown safety that it would maybe get us to keep the schools closed. Mm-hmm. There's another another point here that I want to get into that I thought you did really well with in the book, and that's the issue of class. I want to I want to read a quote from the book. Under the brutal pressures of the pandemic, people with work from home privilege were in danger of developing a certain callousness. We preserved our own safety even when it put other people at risk. You go on to say, not everyone had this luxury, the luxury to stay home and stay afraid. Now, you know, separate from that quote, you have a character in the book, Dara, a New York doctor who has lived in childcare. She was able to renovate her basement and start a school pod in it. She's also someone who supported, uh, for instance, canceling summer camps and, and wrote an op-ed on that. This is the sort of voice that we heard from a lot, economically privileged, medically very cautious, able to maintain stability for their own children. Why do you think this voice sort of dominated the debate? Well, I mean, I think I think you really nailed it, right? Those are the people who have power and authority and the people that we listen to. Um, they, you know, they are, they have PhDs, they work with laptops, they are knowledge workers, they're connect, they're well connected. Um, and I think honestly, one of the strongest examples of that in the child realm was the difference between how we treated child care and how we treated schools, right? Because mm. child care stayed open. Child care providers who make some of them poverty wages, average of like twelve to fifteen dollars an hour, were keeping those places open. They didn't have all this guidance. They didn't have a lot of information about how they were supposed to stay safe. But if they served people who were willing to bring their children there, they stay open from the very beginning. And I write in the book about walking by, you know, an in-home daycare in my neighborhood and seeing that kids were being dropped off in the morning because their parents had essential jobs to go to. So I don't know why there was this bifurcation because we heard a lot about the safety of teachers and I care about teachers. I love teachers. Teachers are very important. But what about the safety of childcare workers? Why were they not placed on the same exact pedestal if we were talking about absolutely safety being the most important thing? Mm. There's also something else we should try to unpack here too, which is, as you say in the book, you know, the political polarization played into this. And this whole school closure phenomenon is, is a bit difficult for me to understand in that it's seemed like it was largely driven by progressives. I come from progressive circles. I didn't understand, you know, the harms as you detail in the book disproportionately impacted the most vulnerable among us, particularly people of color, people that progressives claim to care so much about. How did this happen? Yeah. I mean, this is this is a minefield and certainly there's a lot of debate about it. I let me let me just break down a little bit this way. So Obviously, you know, there, there are, um, you know, many people of color who are characters in the book, people that I spent a lot of time talking with to try to understand their perspective. And what I heard from Black and Hispanic teachers and, and parents was oftentimes they did not want their schools open because they were afraid. They didn't trust their schools or their school administrations or their mayors to keep the schools open and safe. And the reason for that was they had lived experience of dilapidated buildings and of neglect 
and of a lack of, of consideration and treatment in those school buildings. So Patricia, right, is a mom and she works as a special education aide in DC public schools. And she says, I have seen rats in my child in, in the pre-K classroom while the kids are napping, they're running over the mats. How are you going to tell me that it's safe to run schools in a pandemic? So that was the lived experience of communities of color. And they were oftentimes reluctant to come back to schools. The, the people who spoke out in favor of opening schools had a different lived experience. You know, they were, if they were white, they were privileged, you know, oftentimes they were white, they were privileged and their public schools were in better shape, you know? So the ones that they were going to, they had a, they had a, a different idea about what the schools were going to be like to open them. So there was this bifurcation that occurred. And I think that's one, that's one way of looking at it. I, I think that's valid. Another way of looking at it is we know the teacher unions are a democratic stalwart, a progressive block, right? They they support democratic politicians. And so there was in some cities an alignment between teachers whose main goal was as it should be, right? If you're a union and I belong, you know, I belong to a union and NPR, the purpose of that union is to ensure the best working conditions possible for your members. And so that is what teachers are trying to do. They said, we were able to do our job from home in March, 2020. We should be able to do our job from home in September, 2020. That was kind of the, the same thing they were saying, like what, why we were part of the laptop class. Why shouldn't we be able to stay in the laptop class and figure out a way to make it work? Let's not, you know, let's not be hasty to rush back into classrooms. So, and, you know, the risk to children was lower than the risk to an older adult. Like if you're going mm-hmm. into work in, in person in a building, and you didn't have to do that before, I can understand why you wouldn't want to. So that was where I think it kind of fell apart. But there was this lack of, people didn't talk to each other. This is right, we're home, in our homes. We're not talking to each other. We're not meeting Mm -hmm. face-to-face. We're not, you know, having this community conversation. And so we're yelling at each other over Zoom and getting more and more polarized and pushed into our corners. But that's where I saw the conversation going. And I I see the validity of both of those sides. Hmm. And Jill Filipovich had a really interesting piece um, with CNN a couple of weeks ago saying progressives need to have a, a reckoning on this topic, that, that mm-hmm. there needs to be an admission that this issue, that, that we got this one wrong. Do you think that's the case? I read something very similar for the Washington Post. I mean, I think that people on both sides didn't feel heard. And ultimately, where I would point the finger is to say that the science wasn't considered. It wasn't considered in a timely fashion and it wasn't considered in a uh, broad enough fashion, which brings in not only what we know about infectious disease and epidemiology, but also what we know about child development, also what we know about the role of schools. You know, we allowed that to really fade into the background. And for me, it was a a subsuming of the social science over underneath the biological science, but Mm. they're both equally important, right? And we, I mean- people could see it. It was almost like it was suppressed evidence, this idea that, yeah, if you close schools, the kids who have the most disadvantages at home are going to suffer the most. That was known from the beginning. And it should have been surfaced constantly whenever we have this conversation about the pros and the cons. Mm-hmm. And just lastly, I want to talk a little bit about post-traumatic growth, something that you write about in the book, a very hopeful idea for the future. What is that? And, and how do you see that playing out going forward? Yeah. So we hear a lot about resilience and I think it's important to note that, you know, for the kids that have their baseline of a caring family, they're probably going to be resilient to most of the effects of this pandemic, broadly speaking, but post-traumatic growth is something that is different from resilience and moves beyond resilience. Resilience is bouncing back like it never happened. And post-traumatic growth is 
incorporating the experience that you had and really reflecting on it and saying, I'm better because of this. I am stronger because of this. I'm more empathetic because of this. And we can foster that in our children by eliciting from them the conversations about what happened and how we grew from it. So reflecting with our kids on what we went through as a family, how we bonded, what they did, the kind of the the way that they were able to find happiness in like a strange time and and how creative they can be. So helping them understand how, and, and, and the research shows that, you know, kids by the age of like seven or eight are able to hold this complexity in their minds that yes, it was a bad time. It was very hard. And there was some good in it at the same time. Mm. And what do you think sort of institutionally America needs to do to help this generation of children going forward? Oh my God. I mean, there's so much work to do and we, we haven't even started like the, I was hoping like build back better included in it, this package of benefits that every other rich country has, right? The paid family leave, the childcare subsidies and the child tax credit to give income directly to families. None of that was included in the Inflation Reduction Act. So it's off the table right now. I'm worried we're going to, you know, Democrats are going to lose control of the government and it may be off the table for another 10 years or who knows. States are working on it. And I'm hoping that there's, you know, that agenda remains and that there continues to be organizing around it. But, you know, I agree that there needs to be a little bit of a political reckoning in order to understand how it is that we allowed the care agenda to fall to the bottom and how we allowed, once again, women and mothers to take the brunt of something that it really is our full society responsibility to take care of. Mm. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for your book. And uh, I really appreciate the conversation. I think it's a really important one. Thank you so much for your interest and for the great questions. Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.